Hello, welcome to episode 145 of the Juicebox Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Dexcom and Omnipod. We'll be talking a little more about both later in the show, and there are also links in your show notes. But at any time, day or night, that you get the feeling like you want to just know more, you can go to Dexcom.com forward slash Juicebox or MyOmnipod.com forward slash Juicebox. In the beginning of 2018, a study came out that said that they found that insulin can degrade during the shipping process. And it, it went out in the public and everybody got very upset about it. I got a lot of notes from you guys. A lot of notes saying, hey, can you please find the person who wrote this, this study and find out more? And so you know what I did? I found him. This episode is with Alan Carter. Alan is the lead on the study. The study is called... Insulin concentration in vials randomly purchased in pharmacies in the United States. Considerable loss in the cold supply chain. Okay, listen, a couple of things. First of all, nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical otherwise. But second, don't let that kind of boring title to, to Alan's paper throw you off here. This is a really good conversation. Alan has done a lot of work for people with type 1 diabetes over the years. He works for a nonprofit, and he's insanely good at describing this process without it being, let's just say, as boring as the title of Alan's paper, which is very good. He even at the end will offer an email address. If you want to read the entire paper, all you have to do is email him. He'll send it to you. I mean, come on. What a good guy. All right. You guys ready? This is Alan Carter. I don't know what to call this episode because I don't think I can call it insulin concentration of vials randomly purchased in pharmacies in the United States, considerable loss in the cold supply chain. Going to have to think of something else. Well, I'm Alan Carter, and I'm a PharmD pharmacist with um, 40 years' experience of working with patients with all kinds of diseases, including diabetes, and I've done some work in um, monitoring, uh, helping people monitor their diabetes uh, outcomes using alternate tests such as fructosamine besides just blood glucose. So I uh, uh, took an interest in why biosimilar insulins might be um, uh, problematic in the supply and in no patients who've had issues with their control that they couldn't determine anything else other than maybe the insulin wasn't quite as potent as they were expecting it to be and thought this would be a good idea to um, try and compare two different insulins to see how much difference we could find. It's interesting. So Alan, you and I'm assuming there's other authors on your paper. Uh, are you the lead or how does that work? I, I was the lead. I was the guy who had the bright idea to try and do this and then convinced uh, uh, MRI Global to write a grant to look into it further uh, just to see what kind of differences might be there since we do analytical work for uh, a lot of government and private uh, clients uh, in drug development and stability testing and uh, um, various other activities. Um, involving toxicology and uh, pharmacology. And I've been doing so for over 40 years here in Kansas City. Wow. Okay. Well, so this paper, the title of this paper is Insulin Concentration in Vials Randomly Purchased in Pharmacies in the United States, Considerable Loss in the Cold Supply Chain. And when your paper published and it made its way around the diabetes community online, I think it, it, it really was alarming to people. The idea that, it, so can you explain just, how you started what it, it's such a simple concept but but you guys went to a pharmacy and, and what'd you do well i uh we have a pharmacy here at uh, kansas city that i'm the manager of and we support clinical trials throughout the world 
uh, for National Cancer Institute. Um, and through that, I could acquire insulin uh, directly from our wholesaler. And having been a pharmacist in community pharmacy for many years, I also know that you know, there's different wholesalers around that you could get. And I thought, well, this would be a good opportunity to collect a variety of lots to see if we could get uh, any uh, detect any changes between lots to lot and different manufacturers to compare to to see if the insulin concentrations would be what would be expected and any other breakdown products that might be there from shipping and handling uh, just as a what-if type idea. And in order to get a variety of lots uh, in a fairly short period of time, I uh, and from different wholesalers, I know of other pharmacies here in Kansas City from my years of working with different people. And arranged to pick up and have purchased some insulin from them. And NPH and regular are uh, over-the-counter type insulins. You don't have to have a prescription for them. So I could go buy them as a consumer. And I knew which stores bought from different wholesalers. So I managed to collect over a period of time the different lots and stored them in our refrigerator in the pharmacy till we got ready to move them to the laboratory for uh, analytical work. And our refrigeration systems here are based under what they call good manufacturing practices standards, and we have, um, which is better than most pharmacies have, uh, where we're monitoring our refrigeration and freezer temperatures uh, 24-7 so that we can tell whether it gets too hot or too cold. Well, that's a little better than the average pharmacy has. Most pharmacies just check it twice a day with a thermometer and refrigerator, which should be good enough. But uh, we were trying to ensure that we didn't expose it to any unusual handling once we had it in our hands. Right. And and when we stop and think about this idea that this insulin's manufactured somewhere, that manufacturer keeps it cold, they ship it somewhere, that person has to keep it cold, it has to stay cold during the transportation process, it probably gets shipped again and again before it hits a pharmacy, uh, or maybe you have a mail order pharmacy that you get your your insulin from, or maybe you know whatever. There's just there's so many leaps from the moment it's manufactured to the moment you get it home in your refrigerator, which uh, you know none of our refrigerators are probably even as close to being you know perfect as as you would hope uh, you know as the pharmacy might be. But there's just a, and, a bunch of opportunities for for it to get warmer or to be stored at a temperature that's not optimal. Can you tell me when that happens, what happens to the insulin when it's not kept at the right temperature? Well, as it gets warmer, it it breaks down on a fairly linear rate, which uh, Lily in 2003 uh, provided a comment showing that it degrades at about um, 1% a day if it's at uh, room temperature 77, I mean 1% a month. It's at uh, room temperature, 77 degrees, but it's linear. The higher the temperature, the faster the degradation rate is, but it'll still have some activity. If you keep it in a refrigerator, it loses 0.1% of activity per month, uh, so refrigeration would be preferred. But the problem of insulin, too, is if you keep it in a refrigerator and it gets frozen, then that's just as bad as being too hot. might even be worse in some cases, like in the NPH, if it freezes it actually falls out of its suspension and becomes totally unpredictable in what its activity would be. And it won't look quite right when you try and mix it after it's been frozen. And I've had patients have their insulin get frozen because they couldn't afford to buy more, continue to use the insulin, sometimes for several months, and have their control just go completely out of whack uh, because their insulin is only given a, a small portion of its activity because it's been frozen first. 
So that's that may be more of a problem than achieve. So there's this concentration of activity that the that the the insulin has, and as it breaks down, it it loses its effectiveness. And mm-hmm. and and it's funny because I was just thinking about it getting warmer, but now you're talking about if it gets too cold, if it freezes, you have a similar, if not a worse, issue. Um, and so what did you, because you and I spoke previously to this cause we didn't know each other and I reached out and I told you that I really would like to, to shed more light on what you did. And at the same time, my, my, my overarching concern is I, I, I believe that when people are managing their type one diabetes, sometimes the biggest mistake they make is they, they sit around looking for reasons like something doesn't go exactly right. And they'll stare at a blood sugar of 250 for three hours trying to figure out, like, did I miscount the carbs? Did, you know, what did I do wrong? And, you know, part of what they think is maybe it's the insulin. And, and by the time you go through this incredible checklist of things and the waiting, it's always sort of my idea, like, just more insulin. Like, if you're higher, just use more. You know, maybe the reason's important and we can figure it out down the road. But in the moment, I get scared that in the moment people will get frozen with the fear of there's so many variables that they can't figure out what happened and they end up not doing anything. And so as much as I want to shed light on this, I don't want to scare people into thinking that this is one more thing for them to, in their day-to-day moment-to-moment, to be overwhelmed with. And and so I, I really do want to understand clearly what you guys learned. So can you can you help me a little bit understand that what the what the paper's telling us? Because I am not nearly smart enough to read it and make sense of it. Well, and, and it's... Um it is one of those um, things where uh, you give yourself a dose of insulin and you expect a certain response. You start a new vial to you know, monitor your sugars carefully for the first dose or two to make sure that uh, it's, your body's responding to this particular lot the same way it did on a previous lot. And as insulin is in your care and in your pump and getting to body temperature, it may be slightly less effective over time, if it's been three or three days in the reservoir uh, before you change it out. So there may be a little bit there, but as long as it's losing potency, if you're using a pump system and continuous monitoring, uh, you'll be able to increase your dose of insulin enough to offset the high blood sugar or alter your diet. It's just when you use that first dose out of a new vial, it may be more potent than the one you just had for a variety of reasons of being handled. So, uh, again, most diabetes patients know that just by experience. Uh, and so to not panic, just if, but at the other end, uh, side of the coin is, is if you're doing everything uh, the way you've been prescribed and you're following the same routine and you get a number that doesn't make sense and you don't know that you're sick, it's possible the insulin is not as potent as, as what you expected it to be. Right. And that's something that we all assume and and guess at and everything but but what you guys did sort of proved it out which is so so what did you learn that that um when you when you bought these different lots from the different distributors what what came to what came to light i learned that uh, it, it looks like the insulin uh, is handled very similarly from from pharmacy to the next that um that the supply chain may affect may affect the concentration of insulin uh, that's active in the vial throughout the region. I mean, this is just a, a snapshot of the Midwest. Uh, you may have a completely different outcome in the east or west coast, or north or south. It could vary from uh, season as well. So 
but the average uh, insulin, if it's a little lower in its potency on average, your systems can adapt for that and you can increase the insulin dose and you'll do just fine. It's just when you get a new vinyl that's uh, significantly more potent than the previous one you've been using, and that can be because you've used the vial too long, you've kept it around for too many months after you opened it, uh, you're going to potentially have a, a low blood sugar reading if you give yourself the same dose as you gave on the previous vial. And that's and there is no recognized method for an analytical lab to pull it out of the vial and check and see once in a while just to spot check to see how the supply chain has affected the concentration based on what it was when it left the manufacturer. There is no recognized method for that. And I think that needs to be standardized and agreed upon amongst everybody. Because you, you know the retail side of it and, and what happens. And mm-hmm. so all these steps, plus it hits retail. And what ends up happening is you put this insulin in so many different people's hands. And when you leave it to their their best intention, it's their idea of what the best thing to do is. And, and you're saying that, that there need to be rules in place that they have to follow. And this will keep the not only the standard level, but hopefully the quality of the insulin higher and, and more stable. Right, and I would, uh, I would postulate that it's a good idea for the system to have a way of just spot-checking product at the pharmacy level at the end of the supply chain just before it reaches the patient just to make sure any drug is meeting its standard, the minimum uh, amount the FDA says it's supposed to have in the label and its quality is assured because what we're running into is a global supply chain and the global supply chain introduces even far more uh, risky uh, transportation factors potentially than what we currently face. And now that we're thinking of Amazon getting into distribution of drugs and insulin could be one of those medications that they distribute cheaply and people need to afford their medication, absolutely have to afford it. So they reach for the lowest cost possible. You have to make sure that you're the delivery of the drug product to the patient is meeting the quality it should meet based on the original FDA-approved release standards. Yeah, and and if you test along increments, so you're saying just you randomly pull a vial from a shipment and it gets tested on site, and if it reaches you at your step and it's not good, then maybe you know the last step was the issue or whatever, but but at least it doesn't reach people. It's such an odd idea, right, that this well-intended medication leaves the manufacturer and that along the way, the idea is sort of hands thrown up in the air, like, well, if it gets to you good, it gets to you good. And if it doesn't, what are we going to do about it? And, and that's the, that's the uh, concern I've had because I've seen uh, other medications that have what they call a narrow therapeutic range. And, and with Coumadin being an example, uh, it, uh, brand name was worked great. And then we had people switch to the generic and they had issues with bleeding and Nobody could figure out why when they finally analyzed the generic uh, version, and it was 101% of what it labeled said, and you're allowed plus or minus 5% of that 100% labeling. So if it's supposed to have uh, 100 milligrams in it, you can have 105 or as little as 95 milligrams and still be considered to be accurately representing what's on the label. Well, it had 101, and consistently, lot to lot, they did a great job of manufacturing it. The brand name had 97. 98% 98% uh, level, and that little difference was enough to make people have a bleeding issue. Uh, so, it, yeah, it, it can be that, that close and that narrow, and nobody's doing anything wrong. But if you throw in something that's 
you know, affected by the supply chain, such as insulin biologic products, then then we probably need to keep a little closer eye on on what the supply chain impact is to that particular medication because it can be detrimental. Yeah, that makes sense. No, it absolutely does, and it's there. You know, different people are with insulin trying to do, make different accomplishments. Like my daughter's blood sugar; she doesn't feel well right now. She's got a head cold. And her, her blood sugar, I can see, is 130. And in my heart, that's high. And I'm trying to do something about it. But when you get down to these kind of low tolerances where you're just talking about a couple of points one way or the other, it is very important for the insulin to react the way you're expecting it to. Um, exactly. Especially if you're not trying to, you know, you don't want to cause a low. And at the same time, people who are less comfortable being, you know, aggressive with the insulin they're also in a space where the uh, the efficacy of the medication could be the difference between 50 and 100 points in these higher ranges. And then, you, you know, it, it's even more frightening to make these large boluses at a higher range when you can't expect, you already, you know, you're already more insulin resistant when your blood sugar is higher to begin with. And now if you can, at least, at, at least hope that the insulin is going to do somewhat near what you expect it to do. And right. I mean, I'll tell you this, that, you know, my daughter doesn't use, you know, we have, she uses an Omnipod. So every three days, her reservoir gets changed out and we fill the pod up to its capacity, which is 200 units. So when I open a new vial of insulin, my house is kept pretty standardly right between 68 and 70 degrees. It doesn't get much hotter. It doesn't get much colder. Once we open a new vial of insulin, we don't actually ever put it back in the refrigerator, but it's probably gone in you know, a couple of weeks. Um, and I don't know that we've ever had an issue. I've, I've never think about the insulin as being like an issue. Um, but what do you think of that? Do you think I should be putting it back in the refrigerator? Omnipod is in my opinion, the very best insulin pump on the market. Arden has been using it for almost a decade now. It feels like, I don't know, she was four years old. She's 13 now, that's almost a decade, right? And we could not be happier. My daughter's A1C has been between 5.6 and 6.2 for four years. A huge part of that is the technology that we talk about here on the show, the Dexcom and the Omnipod. But all of the great adjustments that I make with Omnipod, all of the ability I have to give her insulin in situations when other people's pumps have to be disconnected, none of that exists with Omnipod. We can keep Arden's insulin delivery where we want it. And, and that is how we stay in control of her blood sugar, keeping it manageable. You know what I mean? Not out of control. No spikes and craziness. I mean, it happens sometimes. It happens to everybody. But I'm talking about for the most part. The freedom that the Omnipod gives us is it's unmatched. I don't see anybody else that can do it. I want you to go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. You're going to fill out a tiny bit of information. When you do, Omnipod is going to send you out a free, no obligation demo pod. You can try it on and see for yourself. Now, there's there's nothing better than that. It's free. There's absolutely no obligation. Like I said, nothing, no reason not to. There's no strings attached here. No strings attached, no tubes attached. I mean, you see what I'm saying right now. Give it a try. There's nothing to lose. It doesn't cost you anything. And I think you might agree with me once you get it and you see it. Myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. Manage your blood sugar the way Arden does. Do you think I should be putting it back in the refrigerator? No, 
A big, well, and you're also using an insulin analog, and we did not use, look at the insulin analogs, and that should be the next step we look at, too. Uh, the, the regular NPH are, are, were originally developed in the 80s. Uh, the analogs have been new, and we don't have great information on what its stability is uh, once opened, other than the manufacturer says it should be thrown away within 28 days. So there's some question there. Maybe they are more stable. And then when you put it in a reservoir, your body temperature is 98.6 if you don't have a fever. Uh, and, and that could affect how stable the insulin is over three days, but it doesn't appear to be an issue based on everybody's experience. So yeah, that that part of it, if you're doing it that way, you're you're fine. The only thing I would, you know, anytime you open up a new vial that's from a different lot that you've had before, there is a slight chance it will have either more or less potency. But if it's a little under it, uh, or a little over, it should be fine. Uh, you're not going to have a crash. But if you're running really, really tight control, as some people want to do, then that change may be enough to trigger a, a lower low than what you anticipate or a higher high than what you anticipate based on your dose because there may be some variance between those vials. Mm. Yeah, so it's definitely... And, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Go well, I was just was uh, and thinking outside the box. If you had some way of testing that vial at home to make sure it is, you know, got intact. So if there's some had some way of doing a test strip on it, that might be helpful in making sure that you're assured that your insulin has not been frozen or or been too hot at some point in time. Well, that's interesting. So you you know how you when you got the the regular MPH in a lab, you know what testing you did. Do you think a test strip is is a is a feasible idea? Uh, it's uh, it's a interesting thought and idea, and we have some really cool technologies now. And I have a, a few friends and colleagues that uh, have thought that might not be uh, uh, a bad approach to think about. So I, I believe there is some interest in uh, at least the academic world to see if they could. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah, see if you could find uh, some way of creating a a home testing kit that would let you check once in a while if you're your insulin uh, concentration just to make sure because if you get it in the mail it could have been exposed to extremely high heat or it could have been frozen and you wouldn't know that if it uh, had reached a room temperature or refrigeration temperature when you got it somewhere along the line it might have been uh, damaged and you wouldn't know it and nobody would know because the vials uh, are enclosed in cardboard boxes and you don't see them until you open the box right you know what I was just thinking, and what you just said made me think: is is the answer possibly that there's something in with the shipment that is an indicator if you've left a range? I don't, and I don't know what uh, that if that what that would be if it's a if it's a, a monitorable, you know. There are temp track devices uh, that we use when we ship products to various trials and things, and and are used uh, when you have a temperature critical product, and you can put it in the center of the box. Uh, and it will, or near the center, and it'll give you the average temperature that that box has been exposed, uh, has inside of it over a period of time until you pull it out and and stop the, the tracking. And you can download that onto a computer and see the graph on a Adobe uh, reader. But it's, it's very easy to do. They're not terribly cheap, and they tend to do it on large shipments, but it measures, just like the monitors that we use in our refrigerations or anybody's refrigerator, it's the, the sensor is in one spot, and it's giving you the average temperature for the whole refrigerator. It doesn't mean that one corner doesn't get below the temperature or above the temperature you want to set it for. 
Have you ever put anything in your refrigerator and thinking, oh, it's, uh, it's fine, go back a few days later and pull out and it's frozen? Right, but not everything but in the refrigerator is frozen. But right. not everything's frozen in the refrigerator. So that happens, and it could happen in a shipment, too. If you've got a shipment of, of insulin and it's sitting too close to the cold pack, and that cold pack happens to be too cold, or the outside temperature is cold, colder than anticipated during shipment, it's possible that that vial or that pin that's closest to the, the cold pack might partially freeze. Now, the agitation of shipping and stuff like that should keep it somewhat mixed, but uh, it may not. So it's possible that a portion of it might get too cold or too hot, and the rest of the shipment temperature tract would show that it stayed within the expected ranges that you need to keep it. So uh, those things could happen, and it'd be just a simple luck of the draw. And it could be that our results on what we found were happened to just be vials that got excursions beyond the temperatures they should have been. And if you went back and tested the same, uh, did the same kind of test later on a different shipment, they, they may be just fine. You know, what, what I'm realizing here is the, the penguins have already answered our question. You just have to find a way to mechanically duplicate it. You, have you ever seen penguins keep warm and they create that kind of, that circle mm -hmm. where, where the one in the middle yep. and, and they, they walk they in a circle. They keep rotating in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah they keep uh, rotating. That's all you got to do. Alan, just go figure that yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a cake. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah, we, we don't want to put any kind of panic into anybody. It's just an awareness. People need to be aware of what might be going on. And I've had patients complain that the insulin that they got from the pharmacy just didn't give them the results that they got from the previous uh, dispensing. And they get a new vial or a new box of pens, and their control shows back up. I've had two patients in the last 15 years that could actually show me their diaries. They included their food intake and her exercise and said, I haven't changed anything except I changed, I got the new insulin and my control started to slide out of control when I was having to use more insulin or, or it wasn't uniform in how I was seeing and I didn't change anything else. We think it was the insulin. I'm saying, well, you must have been sick or you must have the medication. You try any herbal supplements. Did you have any alcohol to drink? Did you? And no, I didn't change anything except my insulin. But we, as Clinicians uh, tend to think, well, there's too many variables here, and it could never be the insulin. Well, that may be the insulin, and we don't just need to discard that information uh, when it's reported. That the patient may be telling the truth, that uh, they didn't do anything different, and maybe it is the insulin. So we'd like to have some way of uniformly determining whether it was the insulin or not, because I hate just guessing. I don't like to guess. I'd like to know. It's worth knowing and it's worth, it's worth trying to understand that that's for certain. Do you exactly. think, do you think that from the pharmaceutical end, do you think that that is just the cost of doing business that once in a while you're going to get a vial that's not as good as the other ones? And do you think that there's just nothing they can do about it? How would you like to be able to see your child's blood sugar 24 hours a day whenever you want to? Sounds good. When they're at school, at a friend's house, at a sleepover, in the backyard, playing baseball, playing football. How does that sound? Do you have an iPhone or an Android phone? Because it works with both. Hmm? You like that? I know you do. How about this? Forget the share for a second. How would you like to know that your child's blood sugar is starting to creep up or beginning to fall? Or, oh my gosh, falling really quickly or rising really fast? You thought you did the right pre-bolus at lunch, but all of a sudden, bang, it's your blood sugar's flying up. You wouldn't know that without a Dexcom. If you're just testing, there'd be no way to see that. 
Dexcom's going to tell you right away, hey, you've told me to let you know when you've gone above this blood sugar, and you are. And by the way, it's happening quickly. So here's a, an alert that tells you not only are you going up, but you're going up fast. This gives you an opportunity to jump right back into the game and make an adjustment. You take a spike that was going to go to 300 and you stop it. It's amazing. This is information you have to have. This is the kind of information I use constantly all day when you hear me talking about the things that I talk about. Pre-bolusing Arden for lunch, eating carb-heavy meals, all that stuff is made possible with Omnipod and Dexcom. To find out more, please go to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box or hit the link in your show notes and get started today. If you're not using a CGM, I can't, I can't stress enough that I think you should be. All right, listen. Let's finish up here with Alan, and then uh, let's get you back to your life, all right? But don't forget Dexcom and Omnipod this week. Use the links, find out more. I think the manufacturers are, are concerned because, one, they want to ensure that you get product that's good. I mean, that, that's how they make their living. They can't be bad at it. Uh, because it threatens their entire business model. You have to depend on them to be correct, and they expect to be correct all the time. But they also have to realize, and they do realize, that they can't control the shipping systems very well. That's sort of beyond their capability, <clears throat> and and understandably so. So, And again, the cost of making insulin is not cheap, and the cost of shipping insulin is not necessarily cheap. And if we try to make it more complicated, it becomes more expensive, which is not great for anybody. <clears throat> so how do we how do we crack this nut without causing a lot of problems? Uh, but I think the information should be at least somehow available to the public that they, they need to think about that, be careful how they s keep their insulin. And also the shippers and the manufacturers need to be careful how their insulin is shipped and handled. Um, but we need some Uniform. The biggest challenge we have is trying to find a recognized method to test it, and there isn't any, and the manufacturers haven't shared that information because that's considered proprietary information, and they don't want to give that away. But how do we, how do we verify this? How do we double-check and make sure that's true? That's what I'd like to see come out of this, is that we all agree on, well, this method for a spot check is going to be every, repeatable every time, and we can get results that we uh, can depend on being, this is what actually measurement is at this point, uh, then we can do a spot check once in a while to make sure and fine-tune the, the delivery systems so that maybe we keep the insulin under better control and possibly it is rotating your um, your uh, package so many times during shipment. How we do that, I'm not sure. Uh, or maybe by insulating the container a little differently with the cold packs uh, so maybe we don't get a cold spot in it. Uh, maybe that's something we need to look at. But we need to be able to track the temperature from the moment the manufacturer puts it in a vial until the pharmacy dispenses it to the patient. And then the patient then can, hopefully, ideally, would be able to continue to monitor that vial's temperature changes while they have it because things happen when in life happens. You go to on a trip and you use a refrigerator in a hotel and it freezes your insulin. Oh, my gosh, what do I do? Somebody's going to have to buy some more insulin somewhere uh, because you don't know what his activity is. Or you go take a trip and you forget and leave your your thing in the car for and it's 100 degrees outside or for some reason the car's temperature gets to 180 inside, which is not unusual in certain parts of the country. Did I destroy the insulin I have on 
on reserve in the car. Those things happen all the time, every day. How do we help you determine whether you've got to run out and find another bottle of insulin and are going to have to buy a $500 box of insulin syringes or pens to replace the one that just got inadvertently damaged because accident happened? I always think that, and I've had this this thought out loud a couple of times, and I've actually spoken to somebody at a pharma company once and said this, I don't know why they don't just, and maybe there's a million business reasons why this idea is terrible, I have no idea, but you know, people get mail order insulin nowadays. Why doesn't the manufacturer just get in the business of being that the middleman and moving the insulin directly from manufacturer to the home? Um, you know, or, or manufacturer directly to the pharmacy so the patient can pick it up. And right, that's right. the hard part is. Right. Uh, and, and I guess in Europe, that's the way it's done. But the interesting, one of the interesting comments that's come out of this whole thing was just, uh, diabetes management uh, experts are thinking, you know, this just can't be right. And I understand why they would think that way. But I've had response from people that have used insulin. And in Europe, they use a, a method where uh, it's a pooled purchase across Europe. And uh, it's called parallel purchasing. And yes, they get it from the pharmacy, but that supply may have routed through the Eastern Bloc countries where it was originally sent to at a much lower price and labeled in that language, then they'll relabel it in English or Spanish or Italian and ship it into those countries for uh, their uh, citizens' use. And it's picked up at the pharmacy. So the the insulin has been shipped to one country as a low price uh, because that country hasn't got an economy that can afford an expensive insulin. And they turn around and then repackage it and ship it into other countries in Europe as a parallel purchase so that that country also enjoys the lower price. And there has been one report to me that by an individual saying, I couldn't get control of my insulin and my diabetes when this started happening. I asked the manufacturer to check the stuff. And I said, well, it looks like it's within spec, but I was still without control. The government program allowed me to directly get it from the manufacturer to my pharmacy or to me. And my control returned, but it already had some damage done, neuropathies that started to show up because it took a couple of years to figure out what was going on. And so that person suspects that that particular uh, delivery supply chain is bad for the quality of insulin that they've got. And they had some adverse outcomes because of that. So, and there's that's just one anecdotal report, but that's some of the feedback we're getting from patients is that the supply chain just seemed to impact the quality of the insulin and it needs to be improved. Taking care of your diabetes is already, it's already hard enough. Mm -hmm. Like, but the thing to to go through that entire process and the insulin you're using isn't effective is just, boy, that is, it makes it feel like the the whole thing's just a waste of time and a disaster, you know? And and you you don't want to do that. Right. But but at the same time, it's, I always, I grew up in Missouri, and I work in Missouri, and Missouri is what's called a show-me state. You, you can tell me everything's good, but you got to show me once in a while. It doesn't have to be every time, but at least I want definitive proof that that I'm getting what I'm getting and what's being discussed is true. So uh, that's kind of what I feel here is, is we just need to check once in a while and have some mechanism which everybody agrees on is a good way of doing it, and and look at the insulin quality periodically 
doesn't have to read every lot or every day, but just once in a while check and then come up with a better way of delivering it so that we can help ensure that it's staying consistent when it reaches the individual trying to use it. Now, once the individual gets it, it would be nice if you could monitor it too from home and there are ways to do that as well, but um, because that adds another wrinkle. But not everybody can afford to do that. Diabetes is an expensive to, to, disease to, to manage and it's a lifetime uh, lifetime lifestyle. And um, a lot of people can't afford it uh, to do it properly. That's why we're seeing some people revert back to the NPH and regulars because you can buy NPH and regular at Walmart or Sam's Club for $25 a vial. That's pretty cheap. And we used to manage people successfully using NPH and regular before the analogs came out. It's not the best method today, but if that's all you can afford, that's what you got to go with. Yeah, right. Well, so the so what you've done so far with you know tracking the NPH and the regular, do you have any plans to do it with the analogs, with the Novalogs Nova and the and stuff like that? We'd love to get a group of people uh, together to determine the best method to do this and, and, a, and a usable, workable protocol to follow that mimics real-world situations, which is what we try to do with the way we collected the vials. We tried to, to mimic what you would do if you were a patient and bought it in a pharmacy or got it dispensed to you and you got a 90-day supply and you've kept it in your refrigerator at home. Uh, and so and a variety of different lots that you might get over a period of time. We tried to, to duplicate that. But to take that type of concept that we're using a, a real-world snapshot periodically to look at it and using a an agreed-upon analytical method to determine how much insulin is in the pen or the vial and is it, how much is the intact insulin, how much is the breakdown products, probably would be necessary to do a... a a test to see what the impact is in a, in a person through controlled trial of uh, what they call insulin clamp studies using that same lot uh, to see how well it, how, what effect it might be on raising or lowering your, your blood sugar. Uh, to do a comprehensive look, at least on occasion, just to, as an insurance policy. I, I like to think of it as, as, as we've got speed limits on highways. Does everybody follow the speed limit? No. Uh, because there's nobody watching, nobody looking to see. If you know the sheriff's two miles down the road and running a radar trap, going to slow down. Well, maybe that's what we need is just once in a while a check, and that be everything, just so that the supply chain is being at least monitored a little bit. Right now, there is no monitoring of the supply chain that I'm aware of. Right. And and in the supply chain, if you're if you're one of these steps along the way, and like you said, no one's watching. There's no real onus on you if you want to cheap out, if you want to be less safe with it, because once it gets that, it's kicked the can. Once it's that far down the road, it's off your shoulders. You, nobody can prove it was you. So, and that's why the manufacturers are concerned too, is because if it's if it's not quality and they have to take it back, then that's a loss. It's kind of like a counterfeit twenty dollar bill. Mm -hmm. If if you're caught with a counterfeit twenty dollar bill, you eat the loss. It's it's your problem. Uh, there's nobody to pass it back to. And the manufacturers, I think, would uh, are concerned that they would be forced to take stuff back that they have no control over. And it's not their fault that it got exposed to bad temperature. So it's sort of a, um, what I don't know is, is good for me. If I, if I know too much, then it might be bad for me. And that's not just the manufacturers, whoever happens to have possession of the insulin. Yeah, it's interesting <clears throat> when you really stop and break it down like this and think about it. There's no... 
it's easy to be upset. Like when you hear something like this, I think people's minds go right to the pharma company, right? Like that's their fault. But it's it fault is is spread out all over the place, and maybe not even it might not even be fault. There could be a part, there could be a link in your supply chain that feels like they're doing everything right and they're not, and they don't even know. And that's you know, right. That's correct, and and it's, and I, I we we definitely do not blame pharma for this. Uh, I mean, it's possible, really remotely possible, that somebody's running really poor quality control. But uh, uh, that's that's just impossible to believe or even think. Uh, but uh, the reality is, that the supply chain is really the the weakest link uh, in the chain is the supply chain itself. And how do we uh, look at that and address it and correct anything? To reduce the risk, you're not going to eliminate the risk, just to reduce the risk that uh, the insulin arrives in your hands as a patient in the uh, concentration that you expect it to be so that you can use it and rely on its activity uh, and understanding that there's going to be absorption differences day to day based on your site of injection. There's going to be uh, differences in your activity and your caloric burn day to day, hour to hour. There are variances in, in diabetes that you just cannot address. But if we know the insulin is within a certain range of potency when you get it and you know how to take care of it when you're at home and you're monitoring that too, then you've eliminated just one less uh, factor to another worry. unknown. Yeah. You, well, you know, I mean, if we're being fair sitting here talking, like the, the pharmaceutical companies have the power. They're the ones paying the shippers. They can, they could put constraints on them and say, look, you have to do this, this, and this, or you don't work for us anymore. And I'm assuming that's a fairly uh, large account that these people would not want to lose. And so I, you would think you could strong arm the the, the shippers mm-hmm. to, to do the right thing. Yeah, the but concern I, is that is once you do that, you raise the cost. Yes. And we're already complaining about the cost now. Right. So that's the other side of the coin is just to do it right, it's going to cost more it money. It costs more money. Mm-hmm. Yes, so we're stuck in a perpetual circle of well, of what what's good enough and at what price. Right, and that's and we like to just determine what's good enough. And right now, it doesn't look like, based on our data, it may not be good enough. Can we improve that without making it ridiculously expensive? Uh, that's the goal, uh, and could be now a technology we could get. Um, they could put a temperature track uh, device that would work uh, either on every box or in every shrink wrap group of insulin. They usually come in in a package, 10 vials in a, in a shrink wrap package. If you buy uh, enough of them, that's how it'll show up for you to help in shipping and packing <clears throat> and have a, a monitor at least in that level on how, how big a level do you keep that monitor and monitor it from A to Z, point A to point Z. And ideally, if you could move that monitoring capability to the patient's hand, then that would help them keep track of their insulin temperatures during everyday life. Right, right. So what did you do when you when you finished the paper? Did you pass it on to industry, or, or what was your, you assume they just we, know that it exists? When we or? ran this, we were trying to see what other differences we could find in insulin. We weren't looking for a concentration insulin specifically. We wanted to see how much different the two biosimilar products, because they're not technically biosimilars, but in reality, that's what they are. They, uh, the MPH and regular have been made for years by two different companies, and they're made different ways, but they're supposed to be human insulin at 100 units per milliliter concentration. So we thought, okay, it's human insulin. 
And there may be slight differences in what else we might find in the vials. Let's look. But the very first step is to identify the insulin. Because we have a USP standard to do that with, and we can make up a USP value of 100 units per mil solution, treat it the same way we do the insulin when we draw it from the vials for injecting in a machine, uh, the LCMS uh, device to measure it. So we should have a known standard and then measure everything else against it. And when we got the data, it's like, uh, what happened here? doesn't match what we expected, except one vial came really close to what we thought our target should be. 94.2, that's, that's within a sneeze of being exactly what it says is supposed to be on the vial. So we were trying to figure out what we might have done wrong. And as we tried to dig into that data, we found that there is no documented way to look at insulin in a vial to check its true concentration that we can find. The manufacturers have it, but they don't want to share that information. Uh, and then we tried to figure out who would be interested in looking at this information to see what might be. And really, it was kind of like a hot potato. Nobody wanted to touch it. And I understand. I mean, it's so controversial. Uh, you don't want to blow things up without some kind of way of determining it. But since there's no documented way that we know of to cross-check all this stuff, it's just original data. And we'd like to see it move forward with uh, additional testing using methods that people agree on is the best way of doing it. And um, checking the analogs uh, probably next, but we need to make sure we're all on the same page before we start down that path. And finding somebody to fund that has been a challenge, and um, as it, it is a hot potato, nobody really wants to own this. Yeah, who wants to prove that that might not, that that might be true? Also, that it's it, it doesn't benefit anybody anybody who you can get money from to do the study. That's for certain. No. Um, yeah, jeez. No. Well, Alan, I appreciate you coming on and explaining this to me because I I saw I saw your paper. It came across my feed a couple of times, and I looked at it and I thought, oh, that is really interesting. But then I actually started getting notes one day from a bunch of people who were like, "Can you find out more about this?" And I said, "Well, I can try." So uh, I appreciate you responding so quickly and getting on so quick. We're actually going to put this up next week so that people can can listen to it and try to understand better. Is there a place I can point them? to get the full paper that they can read, or is it available online um, as a full text? It's available as an abstract online at the Journal of Diabetes Science and Technology, and that requires a subscription. For uh, individuals who want to see it, I can release it on a person-to-person -person basis, which is kind of how it got started out in the general uh, public. Uh, and I just can't release it in general because that violates the journal's uh, agreement. So. I, I would be willing to um, release it to, to individuals if they want to read the entire paper. Uh, it was the idea that uh, this is for their use, their personal use, not for uh, general release to everybody. Uh, and you could reach me at uh, my email address. It's on that uh, contact information. Sure, I'll put it in the show notes. So anybody who is okay. anybody who really wants to dig into the into the text, um, there'll be a yeah. link in the show notes. You can contact Alan, and he'll he'll send it out for you and. And as long as you don't and share it in public, a, it'll be good. I see this as an issue that's going to take all of us to solve. It's it's not uh, it's not something that one person can solve. We just need to find the best way. So, so at the end consumer, if they want to voice their concern, who who do you think they point it at? Well, um, my guess would be the FDA would be the first 
official group to to point their concerns to and ask them if there's a way of of doing a better check of the supply chain uh, to uh, ensure that the product received at the pharmacies are um, good and then periodically at the dispensing point of the patient too, uh, making sure that what the pharmacies, because we've got no way in the pharmacy level to figure out whether it's good. Um, we just have to assume it is, just like everybody else. Whole conversation. Uh, and, yeah, I was a whole other description. Yeah, this whole conversation just makes me think over and over again about the insulin that we're sending to third world countries to to help. Like, what what shape is that showing up in? Well, and the other concern is is when you get to reimportation of drugs, and and that's a big issue. A Canadian drug supply, and we can you can do that, but the FDA says that's not safe. This is why it's not safe: is it can go to a third world country. And this has happened before, and it gets rerouted back into the general supply and then sent back into the United States or into Europe or into Australia that was never intended to reach here, and who knows where it went and how long it sat there. Uh, and that's what you get into with a global supply chain. You need some way to monitor the quality of the product when it reaches the end consumer. Okay. All right. So, uh, well, I wish you luck uh, getting funding to do it um to continue the work, I think it's really important, and I, and I want to thank you very much for shining a light on it. Uh, it's obviously something we've always, all of us always have thought, but it was very interesting to see somebody uh, to prove it out in the real world. So thank you very much. I thank you for inviting me to be on your program, and uh, if there's anything I can do to help you or anyone in the diabetes community, uh, please feel free to reach out. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you, Dexcom. Thank you, Omnipod. Thank you to you, the listener. I appreciate every one of you. I really do. Congratulations to Amy and Jennifer for winning my last giveaway. It was a big grab bag full of bold with insulin stuff, t-shirts and stickers and magnets and everything. Congratulations, guys. Your gifts are coming soon. Also, uh, stay tuned. There's a lot of new news, a lot of new news coming from Omnipod, and we're going to have some people on from Omnipod to talk about it uh, in the coming weeks. We have a ton of great interviews coming up, and there's always, you know, timely stuff like today with Alan, which will slip in. Hey guys, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe in your podcast catcher app, whichever app you're using, hit subscribe. That way you don't have to count on, you know, me putting it on social media. And it is actually one of my dreams where you guys all subscribe, and I no longer have to put anything on social media, which would be a wonderful, wonderful respite for me. So if you want to do something nice for me, just subscribe. You make less work for me on the other side. Again, the show continues to grow. It's doing fantastic. And it does that because you guys are sharing. So thank you very much. And please continue to let other people know about the Juicebox podcast. I'll see you guys next week.